believe it or not, we actually asked for people to talk during the screenings, and we asked for them to leave their cell phones on and be utilized. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. We're coming up on summer, which means we're coming up on festival season. I'll talk with the people behind two festivals with very different purposes. Mostly Lost, at the Library of Congress's Packard Campus in Virginia, and Cinevent, one of the oldest collector's conventions in Columbus, Ohio. But first, Nitrateville Radio is a labor of love, and I'll tell you what I love besides movies, people who subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud so they never miss an episode. I also love people who leave comments at those places, which help make us more visible on those sites. So if you do either of those things, thanks. In the last episode, I said that this episode was going to be an interview with Disney historian J.B. Kaufman. Well, I did that interview, and it's good. It's also long. Long enough to be its own show. So I'm pushing it back, and focusing this time on festivals coming up in the early part of summer. Giving you enough time to actually go if you feel like it. By the way, one thing I want to mention. Both of this episode's segments feature someone who's been a participant at Nitrateville.com. I'm not trying to log roll for the site, but it does show that it really is a place where you can converse directly with interesting people in the world of classic movies. Alright, so first up, Mostly Lost is a funny name for a festival. How do you show lost films? Well, as you'll hear, they're not entirely lost. And it's also not really a festival so much as a working session that reclaims parts of our film heritage in a really interesting way. What am I talking about? Well, you'll find out as I talk to Rob Stone and Rachel Delgadio at the Library of Congress in Culpeper, Virginia, where Mostly Lost 6 will run June 15th through 17th. To start, I asked them to tell me about the place where it happens, the Packard Campus. The, the Packard Campus for Audiovisual Conservation is a, a part of the Library of Congress, and uh, it happened because David Packard, back in oh, 10 or 15 years ago, uh, decided that the motion picture broadcast and recorded sound division of the library um, needed to all come together. We had our nitrate vaults out in Dayton, Ohio. We had storage in Pennsylvania and Maryland, and, and we were up on Capitol Hill. So he found a location and built us a facility. And it's basically the Fort Knox of our film preservation heritage, except Fort Knox doesn't have a theater in it. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. We are we are we are the largest uh, moving 
image archive in the country, and I think we're the largest recorded sound archive in the world. Okay. Now, you have a festival called Mostly Lost. How do you have a festival of lost films? I sense a paradox there. Well, it, 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 it's technically not a festival. We like, okay. to call it a wor- we like to call it a workshop because we do expect people to come and, and participate in, in a way a little bit different than, uh, than what a film festival would do. Um, you know, it, it came, there, there's been efforts for years to try to identify films and collections. I, I know um, there was a, a workshop in Prague in 1968, and the reason they didn't have one in 1969 was because the, the communists invaded the country. <laughs> um, but then Eileen Bowser up in, uh, at MoMA tried this, and then I even did a couple sessions at Senecon way, way in the way back when. Um, but uh, it, it just came about because uh, we just can't stand to look at a can that says unidentified without opening it up and trying to figure out what's inside. So where do these films come from, and how do they get separated from anybody knowing what they are? These films come from institutions from around the world, actually. In the past, we've had archives such as Lobster Film Archive in Paris, We've had Museum of Modern Art, UCLA, Gustomofond in Russia, the Dutch Kinematheque, um, the iFilm Institute in the Netherlands, Cinematheque Francais, the George Eastman Museum, and even collectors submit films. And they get these films, all, like we do here at the Library of Congress, from collectors. They buy people's collections or they get them donated. And you know, people tend to find them in their attics, basements, when theaters are torn down. And they go, I don't know what to do with this. So they find their closest archive and say, will you take this? And usually they say yes. And sometimes these are people who've, um, who have initially found it. It didn't used to be to where studios wanted their films back. They, it wasn't worth it to them to pay the shipping to get the films all the way back. So after it did its run, they just kind of let it stay at whatever theater it ended in. And so sometimes the projectionist, who was the last one to have it, kept it. And then he would have fun with the slicer and splice together whatever they wanted or take out their favorite parts or remove their least favorite parts. And then we would end up with whatever clips still existed. So archives keep them. You know, we're glad to have them because until we don't, until we know what it is, who knows? It could be a great lost film or it could be, you know, a film that exists in every other archive in the world. And you just don't know that until it gets identified. And so collectors have the same thing. They come across these things at shows at yard sales. And they go, well, I don't know what it is, but I'll pay a buck and see what it is. And they can't figure it out. Then they contact us or they respond to our call for material. As you say, it's a workshop, not a festival. And I noticed on the site, I mean, there's some, there's some rules about who can attend. Tell me about that. So we, it's a three-day event here at the Library of Congress in Culpeper, and we ask for attendees from around the world to come to talk during our movies. Um, in our beautiful 205-seat theater, we, we screen these films. We ask for the audience to call it what they recognize that is being shown on screen. So that is anything. It can be actors' names, locations, car models, so on. And this very literal crowdsourcing is uh, further accomplished by people doing research on their laptops, smartphones, other Internet-capable devices. Um, yeah, believe it or not, we actually ask for people to talk during the screenings, and it's, we ask for them to leave their cell phones on and be utilized. 
So actually, we ask for anybody who's willing to do that active work to attend and help us. So, you know, film buffs, other archivists, students, historians, anybody who's interested can come. They just have to realize that you're not going to just be allowed to sit back and relax and enjoy a film. We are going to interrupt this screening, and we want you to interrupt the screening. We want you to help and yell out whatever you recognize. You know, and, and we, have, we have people sometimes say, well, I don't know that much about movies. So why, why should I come? And the trick is, is you may not know movies, but you might know fashions. You might know motor cars. You might know um, what, what, what year the, the telephone that's in the film was, uh, was made. Um, so it really, we really do encourage just about anybody to come who, who, who can do, as Rachel said, participate. Um, not as much interested in, in people that just want, you know, it, it's fun to watch, but we really want people to participate. I mean, it almost sounds less like a film festival than a kind of game show where you're just shouting <laughs> answers. Well, I, I, I will have to, I will have to say that there are, there are some among us who can get a little bit, little competitive on, on, uh, you know, I can name that film in four <laughs> frames, you know, it's almost like, almost like name that tune, but, um, and we try not, you know, we, I joke about being competitive. It's really actually really kind of cool because people, people sometimes will shout out the wrong thing, which leads to the right thing. So it's, it's, it really is kind of a cool interaction in that um, people can, uh, you know, we, we, we encourage people to speak up. You know, you don't have to be right. The point is to get to right, not to, you know, not to start out there. So, and, and that's happened a plenty of times where someone has, has mentioned a name and you go, no, it's not him. Oh, but it must be. And, and it, it, it spurs you on to something else. That, that's why we like having everybody in the room together at the same time, because um, the interaction a lot of times is what leads to the identification. And this goes on for three days. That's I'm kind of amazed at the dedication. How many hours of film do you t- typically show? It really changes every year. It depends on what is submitted and how it functions together. It's kind of... You're putting Lego pieces together, sometimes trying to make things work. Um, so we do Thursday morning is a tour for those who have never been here before and want a tour of the Library of Congress. This year we're doing a counter program of a presentation. And Thursday afternoon is after lunch, three presentations. And then it'll be a couple of hours of unidentified, at most two hours, more likely maybe 90 minutes of unidentified films. And then both Friday and Saturday, it is nonstop unidentified films except for lunches and presentations from about 9 a.m. to 5.15 p.m. Wow. So, you know, there's probably maybe three hours every day that's spent doing breaks. We let people go to the bathroom. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But we try to have as many unidentified programmed as possible to help break up the day and to display some knowledge from the attendees we have presentations throughout the events, and it's a good variety of things. For instance, we're, uh, David Pierce is going to talk about the destruction of American silent features. Robert Kiss will give a history about Forgotten Star Cassio. Meryl McCord is going to talk about William Fox and the Fox Film Corporation. And Kelly Robinson will be presenting on the lost origins of silent horror icons. And to complement her talk on Friday evening, we're going to do a program of entirely horror icons. And so there's a good variety of things that she's going to be presenting and then we're going to screen, such as the 1915 film The Devil, 
the short, The Were Tiger, and then the very rare film, The Stolen Play. So that's Friday night. We tend to do a good smattering of new restorations or preservations, such as we've teamed up with Rob Byrne at the Silent Film at the San Francisco Silent Film Festival previously, and this year he's going to actually do the East Coast premiere of the Louise Brooks film, Now We're in the Air. Um, so that's sorry we do, and we also try to feature films that are otherwise rarely, if ever, seen or very difficult to find, hence um, the horror icon films. And we're also doing this year, um, I don't even know if anybody's seen it in the last several decades, but it's a June Caprice film called Rogues and Romance. Hmm. So we do those as evening features. It's all known. We ask people, you know, you spent all day sitting there trying to identify things. This is your evening screening for us to say thank you and for you to get to see things that you otherwise probably would not get to see. So tell me, uh, tell me some success stories from this, how people put together uh, what something was. Well, it's really interesting how it works out. Sometimes in the screening, one person will recognize an actor, and then somebody else recognizes another actor, and then somebody who might have their laptop in front of them will just reference, cross-reference both of those names, and then as the plot is playing out in front of them, they'll call out possible titles. These two people worked on these films together. And they'll say, well, they made this film called Blah, and somebody else who's paying more attention to what's happening on screen go, you know, that would make sense because she is wearing a locket. And so then we kind of follow that down the rabbit hole, and then it works out beautifully for that to, hap- for that to be what it actually is. One of the fun films of last year that's actually going to be on the DVD that all of the attendees will receive this year is a very cute film called uh, Toodles, Tom, and Trouble. And it just was a very big crowd pleaser. The film revolved around a baby and a doll that was mistaken by the father whenever a dog takes the doll that he thinks is his baby all through town the baby doll actually gets blown up at one point in time (laughs) with the dog at a construction site, and the father very dejectedly walks back to the wife to try to tell her, and then he finds the real baby and everything's okay. But as it was going on, people were just suggesting, well, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, and eventually we figured out what the title was. So wait, the dog got blew up and you say everything's okay? Well, it was, Blown up. it was very disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever we get films, whether it be from the Library of Congress's collection or from collectors or other institutions, Rob and I sit down and we preview everything. There is no Mary Pickford or Buster Keaton programmed at Mostly Lost. You know, we those are easy enough. This is all really difficult stuff. So. It's really interesting because just in preparation for most of their loss, a lot of things get identified. And it's because a lot of people, if they're just processing a collection, they just slap titles on things and they don't have the time or maybe they don't have the resources, especially pre-Internet records. Um, so it's a lot of just fixing those kinds of things. So just in previewing things for most of loss, we've come across several very interesting things here and there, and some of which is just, you know, another minute here or there for, um, I think it's The Exile. Mm-hmm. We found um, some minutes that were missing from what the Library of Congress had preserved previously. 
um, only on 16 millimeter, if I remember correctly, but at least it exists. And during the event, of course, more things get identified. It's, it's a very fun event. Sometimes during the, the screening, people will recognize one or two little things, and it's a continuous dialogue between everybody. And then sometimes if the film is really dragging, then the peanut gallery and everybody really kicks in and there's a lot of riffing. <laughs> and, you know, and if it's really enjoyable, like the movie I already mentioned, Toodles, Tom and Trouble, then it was just a very fun film. So there was like even applause when things happen. So it really, it kind of goes back and forth. But the very infamous story that I love to tell is one of the films that was put up on screen, I think it had been on for maybe 10 seconds before you saw your first character. And your first character we saw was the very rotund rear end of a man. And as soon as it came on screen, Steve Moss has said, that's whoever it was. <laughs> Didn't even see his face. He knew it just from the man's rear end. And um, he will never live that down. <laughs> <laughs> Henry Bergman. Henry Bergman. Henry Bergman, and, and he'll never live it down. But, you know, there's, there, there's, there's funny things like that, and then there's things like um, uh, a, uh, one of the sessions was on uh, this actress, Lois Scott, who very rare, very few of her things exist, and uh, Dr. Robert Kiss did, did a presentation on them, and we, it was a great presentation. We thought, oh, she was kind of an endearing actress. Too bad more of her stuff doesn't survive. Okay, everybody, we're going to watch some unidentified now. And no sooner did we put something on the screen than she was on one, in one of those movies. Huh. There's all those kind of serendipity things. We had a we had a guy one time come with a still, and he says, "I have this still, and I, I want to know what movie this still is from." And sure enough, during that day, we ran a clip from that from that uh, from, from that, that same film. movie. Huh. We, so we get you get weird things like that. We um we tend to we 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 like Rachel said we we watch a lot of stuff we identify a lot of stuff we kick out a lot of stuff and then we end up with what we end up with but every year it always ends up that we have like one year seemed like snow was the uh the theme. <laughs> yeah <laughs> another year it was animal cruelty and then bizarre bizarre last year um Rachel was get, getting ready to get married and sure enough in the movies that we're showing Seemed like everybody, every other movie, somebody was getting married. So <laughs> we we have these un, unintentional uh, themes that 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 run throughout. And we really we don't sit there and say, "Oh, gee, you're getting married this year. Let's let's make sure we put in a lot of movies with." We, we don't do that. Right. But it, 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 it just it's kind of fun how it happens. Because then you almost you almost uh, at least I do during during the day. I kind of start in the back of my mind, starting to think, "Well, what's the theme? What's the theme?" Uh, so most of these films, I mean, I'm guessing. I mean, it's it's obviously not major studio, major star things because we know what those are. Um, is it mostly teens and twenties? Is it? Uh, I imagine a lot of comedy shorts from obscure studios, things like that. Well, I mean, we 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 try, underline try, to to make sure we uh, have a cross a cross section of comedy, drama, western, actuality. Um, but it does it does lean a bit towards comedy I, and I think that may be in part that that's what tended to survive a bit more um, comedy's, comedy's got a little bit more of a life in them with uh, you know after, they're, after they were originally ran and with things like the Youngson compilations and things like that where, where dramas tended to, to not do so much um, but uh, you know teens and twenties uh, we, we won't turn, turn away a sound uh, 
a sound uh, clip or two if we come across them. But then again, you know, that's one of those things where the, the more factors you have, such as sound, uh, the more likely you are to have it identified, you know, in the first place. Right. Now, you said everybody gets a DVD. Is that like the Found It Mostly Lost DVD that was put out, or is that a special one, or what? Um, well, we put we give out a DVD every year of like three three films from the previous year, just as kind of a, you know, it's kind of your, um, you know, door prize or whatever. Um, the Found It Mostly Lost DVD was actually a compilation of the first five years of the best of those uh, discs that were put out. So in, in essence, the best from Mostly Lost. Right. And it and it, it features our our normal accompanists, Philip Carley and Andrew Simpson and and. Ben Modell, of course. Yeah, Ben Modell put that out. Let's talk about that a little bit because I think that's one of the things that's so cool. I mean, we, you know, on Nitrateville, we get a certain amount of the those archives. They just sit on everything and they won't let anything out. And this is has really been a beautiful thing where people who are sort of working on a, you know, professional amateur level, you might call it, um, have worked with the Library of Congress to release. Um, public domain films in high quality editions so tell me tell me how that worked with ben putting all those things out well we have an ongoing relationship with ben already um he's put out uh, a collection of uh, you know musty suffer and um, uh, marcel perez and uh, he's getting ready to put out uh, marion davies called when knighthood was in flower uh, so we already had an, a, a business relationship with relationship with him to put out dvds and we also have a relationship with Kino Lorber and a few other distributors. Uh, but Ben also being uh, uh, an integral part of um, Mostly Lost felt like he wanted to, to, to do something extra. And in fact, the, when he put out the disc, the, the, the royalties for that are go back into the Mostly Lost uh, budget. So it, it really was a labor love on his part to, to do that. But we already had kind of a relationship going with the DVD distribution, and we had a relationship with him with Mostly Lost, so it was just a kind of a natural. So if people wanted to actually do this, and they think they have the chops to go in there and shout out, hey, that's, uh, oh, I forgot her name already, Lois. Uh, Lois okay. Scott. Yeah, to sit there and go, hey, that's Lois Scott, uh, or, or that's Henry Bergman's rear, rear end. Um, if they want to do that, uh, what, what's the process? What do they need to do? So we have a web page on Eventbrite. So if they just will search Mostly Lost, it should be the first thing that comes up. Our uh, link is mostlylost6 at eventbrite.com, and all of that is spelled out. And it's a very long web page. I put <laughs> as much information as possible on there. <laughs> so uh, they can read through things, but you can register on there um, as much as you like. We'd love for you to bring a group. <laughs> <laughs> and you said uh, registration closes June 1st? It does. June 1st is our deadline or whenever we sell out. Registration opened on Monday, April 3rd. And as of right now, we are almost exactly at halfway full. So we're going to cut it off at 200, so whichever one comes first. Okay. It's a really fun three days. It's a good chance to, to see some stuff you would never see, hang out with some people that uh, you don't get the chance to hang out with. And um, it, it, we, we obviously like it.
mostly lost is June 15th through 17th, but registration closes June 1st or whenever it sells out. In the show post at nitrateville.com, I'll have links for registration and information. I'll also have a link for Ben Modell's DVD of Found It Mostly Lost, as well as for his label, Undercrank Productions. I'll be talking to him in a future episode, closer to the time that he releases When Nighthood Was in Flower. The music you're listening to, by the way, is Ben's score for a short film starring Monty Banks, which was identified at Mostly Lost as In and Out from 1920 or 21. stars is a message of doom for this our world and now in the most shattering experience the screen has ever given you paramount tells what could happen within your lifetime when worlds collide that's the trailer for george pal's 1951 film of when worlds collide which will be playing at cinevent in columbus ohio over memorial day weekend so far on this show i've mainly talked to people from festivals that have ties to archives or other institutions but Cinevent is a true movie buffs festival, a festival put on by, and to some extent for, collectors of movies, going back to the days when nobody heard of DVDs or TCM, but traded 16mm prints of classic films, as well as posters, books, lobby cards, and who knows what. A lot of these festivals have gone away in recent years, as the collectors involved have passed from the scene. But Cinevent is still going into its second generation. I spoke with Michael Haynes, whose late father Steve Haynes helped start it half a century ago. Cinevent started, I mean, it really grew out of doing Cinecon, didn't it? So there were, um, and, and this, now we're talking about stuff that predates my existence. Right. Um, <laughs> there, were, there, there were some regional Cinecons in the mid to late 1960s. Uh, and as I recall, those were held in Dayton. Um, and I can't say that I remember quite all the details, but the long and the short of it was that there wasn't going to be one for 1969. And so some of the, uh, folks in this part of the state said, Hey, let's, uh, let's do our own thing. And that's how it began. Uh, and your dad was one of those. Yep. Yep. He and, uh, John Stingley and John Baker were the three official founders of the convention. I remember having heard that the uh, earliest years of Cinevent, there wasn't even any sort of program book. There was, you know, a chalkboard or something like that <laughs> where they would just write, you know, the names of things that people had brought that they would end up showing. So it's it's definitely, uh, it's still got some of that same spirit. Uh, and uh, a lot of the prints that we show come from collectors still, uh, along with some institutions, uh, but but definitely has progressed a bit beyond the uh, the chalkboard. Well, yeah, let's talk about where do these things come from and how do you put the program together out of it? So there are on the order of, let's say, 20 or so, and, and I might be off by a little bit on that number, uh, film collectors who have over the years provided us with lists of part or all of their collection on 16 millimeter, which is that's the, the only thing we screen at Cinevent is 16 millimeter. 
Um, and, uh, you know, they sent us their list of the prints they have that they would be willing to let us use for the show. And I've never added it up, but off the top of my head, if I was going to guess, you're talking, you know, literally thousands of different titles that folks have made available. And, uh, there are about four or five of us that go through, we look at the lists, we look to see what has shown in recent years. And when I say that, I'm talking, you know, anytime in the last couple of decades, uh, at Cinevent or at similar shows. Um, and we try to, for the most part, exclude things that have been shown recently. Uh, sometimes things fall through the cracks or sometimes there's a particular reason we want to reshow something. Uh, and then it's also a matter of trying to balance, you know, the silent and sound eras and different genres of film and trying to have, you know, a couple of color titles in there. And really there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff and it ends up sort of feeling like a, a jigsaw puzzle or a game of Tetris when you get near the end there where you're trying to figure out, okay, you know, how do we fit in, you know, a silent comedy, a Western and a color movie into what's left of the schedule. For the sound films, I mean, it's mostly, I would say, TV prints. Uh, the kind of thing it used to be on the Late Late Show back in the day. Uh, not so much anymore. Yeah, yeah, I think that would be, I think that would be a fair statement. It, it varies, um, you know, again, depending on the, the source. But, yep, that's, that's probably a pretty common. And then where did the silence come from and things like the silent comedies? So those, there, there are a lot fewer. So I'd say, you know, I said I suspected there were probably about 20 or so collectors, plus a couple institutions, uh, that we get lists from. And, and of those, you know, probably three quarters of them are all or mostly sound prints. Uh, the silent prints really only come from a, a handful of sources. Uh, and again, you know, to be honest, I couldn't tell you where those collectors originally acquired them. Uh, um, you know, I haven't ever had those specific conversations, uh, but it's certainly, it's, it's nice to have the ability to show these things that aren't easy to come by, uh, on a big screen and with live piano accompaniment. You know, when I, when I was first seeing a lot of silence, it was typically like a theater organ society say, and they made sure that the, the music presentation was really good. They were a lot more casual about the quality of the film presentation. And here, I mean, there's really, you know, besides the fact that you just have, you know, stellar accompanists, uh, Phil Carley and David Drazen and people like that. Um, it's also just, it's important. It's a well-balanced program by people who, who love film. Yeah, and, and we're, we're really glad that both uh, Philip and David are able to do such a great job for us. That's something that I think... You know, there are there are some people who come to our shows and we're always trying to get new people in the door because that's what will help the convention, you know, have a have a good long lifetime um, who may have never seen a silent movie with live piano accompaniment. So that's something that, that I think we really value as being part of the presentation. Uh, and so we, we make a point of trying to spread those across the different days so that if you have someone who's only going to be there for one day, say, um, they still have the opportunity to see a couple of silent pictures with the live accompaniment. Well, let's talk about some of the things that are going to be there uh, this year. So this is Memorial Day in Columbus, yep. Ohio. Yep, uh, Memorial Day weekend. I mean, technically the show's over before Memorial Day. Oh, okay. Uh, it, <laughs> That's it, true. It, it used to run Friday to Monday, but now it runs Thursday to Sunday, so the 25th to the 28th. 
And what are some of the highlights as far as you're concerned? So some of the things I'm most excited about us having are um, probably the top thing would be uh, a restored print of Battle of the Century. Um, It's actually specifically it's the restored second reel along with an earlier print of the first reel. Uh, And we were able to to use that courtesy of a collector out in California. Uh, And I'm really excited about that because, you know, when they first announced that the missing footage had been discovered a couple years ago. I thought that was really neat and hoped I'd have the opportunity to see it someday. Uh, Laurel and Hardy was something I grew up watching. So, so that's exciting to me. Um, and there's not oh, much of their work that's lost, but that half reel that has the pie fight in it was part of what was missing. Yes. Yeah. So I think that's, I think that's really neat. Uh, other things that I would be especially excited about is having on the program this year We've got a professional sweetheart with uh, Ginger Rogers. That was uh, one of the prints, actually, that we're being able to use courtesy of uh, William Everson's former collection. Um, so I'm excited about that. And uh, also... And why is that just a film that hasn't been available before? Um, so it, it's it's not particularly available, but it's a... You know, sort of a, a major star, Ginger Rogers, in kind of an early film, uh, and yeah, that's that's something that it hasn't been shown a lot on the the convention circuit. I do believe it may show up on Turner Classic Movies from time to time, but again, I think sort of like with the live piano accompaniment, which this is a sound film, but there's a different experience seeing a movie with an audience as compared to at home. Uh, so I think it'll be neat to to give people that experience. Um. And then there are some other things, uh, a somewhat, um, I guess, obscure is the right word, uh, British drama called Two Living, One Dead. That's from 1961. Uh, it's you know, sort of getting into sort of the very tail end of the time period we'd usually cover. Uh, and I know I had at least you know, one person specifically tell me how excited they were uh, that they were going to have this opportunity to see that. Uh, and same thing for Where's Charlie, for that matter, with Ray Bolger. Um, you know, that I know there are people who are excited about that. And then uh, getting beyond just the movies, something that I think is really neat is um, Leo Gorsi, who would have been turning 100 uh, in June, about two weeks after the convention be over. Um, his daughter, Brandy Gorsi Zismer, is going to be at our show, and she's going to introduce a print of Clancy Street Boys that Leo Gorsi was in. So I think that'll be really neat to have her there talking about her father, uh, and she'll also be displaying and selling some of his memorabilia. Okay. So I think that's I think that's a, a neat experience for people. So I, I guess when it comes down to it, you know, when you ask me what I'm excited about, a lot of it is the experiences we can provide to people, and you know, having a good variety of experiences for people to enjoy. Well, and it's interesting you talk about it in terms of such obscurities, and that's really the audience. It's the people who've seen everything. My friend Irv, who goes uh, every year, you know, said people ask him, so are you going to see uh, Casablanca, the Maltese Falcon? And he's like, that's the last thing any of us want right. to see. You know, but it's like you get that, you know, the obscure, uh, you know, 1933 Ricardo Cortez movie. It's like score. So and that's that's something that's a lot harder than it was even 10 years ago, because there's so many more things that are available now on DVD or or streaming or, you know, whatever YouTube, you know, it's harder to find movies that aren't available anywhere, but we still manage to turn some up. 
it hasn't always been possible to completely avoid things that would be maybe available on DVD. Um, so, you know, still try to get the variety in there. Um, because again, it's it's a different experience. Uh, and you have a couple of authors coming as well this year. Uh, last year, Scott Iman introduced a John Wayne film. This year, we've got Robert Matson and James Dark introducing a couple films. And then, as far as the book signings, we've got Scott Iman back again doing a book signing. Uh, Richard Barrios, uh, Robert Matson, and uh, then Brandy Gorsese is going to be. Uh, signing some books of her father's and Len Getz also will be doing some signings uh, who's written about uh, Leo Gorsi. You know, and I and I neglected John McElwee, so I'll, oh uh, yes, our, yep. our, our can't, friend can't and, do that. Yes, and, yes. Uh, premier guest. Yes, from your Nitric. first episode, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Now let's talk about the uh, the collector side of it. I mean, there's there's various dealer rooms scattered around the hotel, uh, and there is there. The uh, the big auction of the poster auction that that happened kind of happens online. I don't know. I've never participated in it because I haven't been in the market for a several thousand dollar poster. But <laughs> yeah, not not all of us are. Um, uh, certainly, uh, yeah. The the poster auction run by Morris Everett out of Cleveland uh, that'll be running alongside Cinevent again this year. This is their twenty fifth year, um, so milestone year for them. And uh, that'll be on Saturday. And that, yeah, that is something to what you were alluding to there. It used to be that, you know, the majority of the bidding on that would be happening in person. And now there still are some people who bid in person. Uh, but a lot of it does happen online or by telephone. Uh, so that'll be happening on Saturday. And then all the dealer spaces for the convention itself are on the second floor. We've got the whole ballroom, uh, one section of it is used for the screening room, and the other 75% or so is the main dealer's room where we've got over 100 tables with, I'd say, right around 45, 50 different dealers. I don't remember the exact number off the top of my head. And you can uh, spend the whole weekend just leafing through lobby cards as oh, far you as could, I'm yeah. concerned. Yeah, you could. There's There's people with box after box or crate after crate of lobby cards and stills and yeah you could you could spend a long time looking through those so yeah i mean let's let's talk about i mean the world has changed in so many ways since uh your father and other people started doing this uh, 49 years ago apparently now everybody has a movie collection on little silver discs and uh <laughs> You know, so and also I think the audience for so many of these things, I mean, certainly it gets older. I mean, how are you evolving it to attract new people, keep up with the way times change, all that stuff? So we're uh, we're trying to do some different forms of advertising, you know, in addition to the things we've done in the past with you know advertisements in magazines like classic images and films of the golden age. Uh, we've been more out there on Facebook the last year or so. Uh, I believe we've multiplied our Facebook likes by a factor of something like five over the last two years. Um, and I think there's still plenty more people out there that we could, we could reach out to. Uh, we've got a, a Twitter feed as well. Uh, and then we're trying some different things with advertising this year. Um, and this is more you know, locally minded then. So whereas the Facebook and the Twitter people from, all over the country or even all over the world could be following us. Um, with the advertising, we're trying some local advertising to get more people from the central Ohio area in the door. 
uh, partnering with a couple of local theaters, uh, as well as uh, trying out some advertising here in May on MeTV. Okay. So we're hoping that you know through those new forms of outreach, we'll get some new folks in the door, and like I said, hopefully keep the keep the audience growing. So where do people come from for it? Uh, how much of it is local, and how far away do they tend to come from? So I would say it's probably roughly 50-50 local versus non-local. Okay. Um, and as far as how far do people come away from, we've got some from outside of the country, uh, quite a few from Canada. Usually every year there are you know, one or two from Europe. Uh, for quite a few years we had a dealer from South America. He hasn't been able to attend for a couple years. Uh, and then as far as within the United States, we've got, you know, quite a few people who come from out, uh, on the West coast and Arizona, places like that, Texas, you know, really, really all over. I just, you know, I hope that, uh, folks who have not come to the show who are able to come would give us a, give us a shot. I think we put on a good show and it's, uh, we bill ourselves as the, you know, Midwest's friendliest film convention. And I think uh, one of the things I hear from a lot of people is how much they enjoy coming to socialize with people. And uh, yeah, so I guess if you haven't come, please check us out. I think all you scientists are crackpots. Nothing is going to happen. Sin event will be Thursday, May 25th through Sunday, May 28th in Columbus, Ohio. Links for registration, the complete program, and other useful info will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Rob Stone and Rachel Delgadio of the Library of Congress and Michael Haynes of Cinevent. And thanks to Ben Modell for permission to use his score from Found It Mostly Lost. Other music is by Kevin McLeod. In the next episode, I'll talk to Disney historian J.B. Kaufman, really this time. We'll talk about his recent book on Pinocchio, his work on Disney's Silly Symphonies, and more. And remember to subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. We'll be back when worlds collide.